If you're enjoying the show so far, please consider helping by supporting our show. Although never expected, any support for our show enables us to keep bringing the audiobook club to your ears. Hello and welcome to the Audiobook Club. Today we're so lucky to be joined by legendary audiobook narrator, actor, coach and author, Sean Pratt. Sean, thank you so much for joining me on the show. How are you today? I'm very good, thank you. It's, uh, like I said uh, before, it's a uh, nice, uh, balmy 33 degrees today in Oklahoma City. So it's, uh, it's short weather still, which is nice. I'm so, so envious of that. We have had to bring out the raincoats quite rapidly over here. So, uh, yeah, very envious of that. <laughs> so over a thousand audiobooks, over 30 years in the business of performing on stage, TV, film, and of course, in an audio booth. I know this is a big question to start off with, but would you perhaps be able to tell us a little about your background, how you found audiobook narration, and how and when you chose to pursue this venture? Well, those are three big questions. Um, <laughs> let's see. I started acting here in Oklahoma City. My, my whole family's from this state. We've been here for, gosh, 130 years. I know that doesn't seem very long by UK standards, but in my state, that's a long time. Um, but uh, I started acting at school and with the local theater groups here when I was around 10 years old. And I acted all through high school and uh, with, at school and with the theater groups and went off to uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico to get my, my acting degree at a little school out there. And uh, I always knew I was going to be an actor uh, since the time I was very little. I know it sort of makes me a bit of an anomaly. There was no... There was, I knew this was the only thing I wanted to do. And by the time I graduated uh, college and started working professionally, um, I did some movies in the Southwest and TV shows, Westerns mainly. But when I went to New York, I wanted to be a classical theater actor. That's what I wanted to do. And um, not only with uh, doing Shakespeare, but Shaw and Sophocles and Moliere and things like that. And after a few years of uh, scrounging around uh, as a carpenter, that was how I got through school, was by building houses and building sets. I became a company member with the Pearl Theater, which was an off-Broadway classical repertory company. And I was in the acting company for four years. I was the resident male juvenile. I played all the young prince roles and things like that. And then I began to work in the regions, in the hinterlands, doing repertory theater everywhere from say Kansas City to Dallas, Texas and everywhere in between. And um, it was a great, it was a great life, great experience. And, but toward the uh, beginning of the mid 1990s, I, I moved down to Washington DC to sort of start my life over again. I'd met someone and um, uh, we moved in together and uh, I, I realized I was getting burnt out of theater. I'd been doing repertory theater for a long time and it's an extremely monastic life. It's a very intense kind of process where you're rehearsing the next show of the season during the day and performing at night. And you do that six days a week for months on end. And it's, it's grueling. It's grueling. Um, and around that time, I remembered a conversation I had with an actor uh, in Washington several years before um, we were doing a play together and, we were in the green room and I happened to ask, I said, so what do you, what do you do when you're not performing? And he said, I narrate audiobooks." I said, really, what's that about? I had no idea and not, not a clue. And over a cup of coffee, he explained the industry 
to me in a broad sense. And he said, well, if you ever move down to Washington, D.C., give me a call and I can, if you're interested, I can introduce you to some people. And sure enough, you know, a few years later, I do. I moved down to Washington and um, find myself at sort of loose ends, you know, wanting to get out of theater, but I need something else. And around that time, I'm getting back into film and television and so on. So I give him a call. He introduces me to a gentleman named Grover Gardner, who is a real icon in our industry. He's narrated probably close, I'm going to guess, close to 2,000 books. Um, Grover, and so I, I met this gentleman, and um, he lived uh, just outside of Washington, D.C. in Maryland. I went to his house one afternoon, and um, uh, he showed me around the studio. We had a very long conversation over our, uh, multiple cups of coffee and hours of sitting around the kitchen table talking about it. And when I left his house, I knew, I knew two things. One, that I really wanted to get into doing this, that I mm -hmm. saw the potential. And two, I didn't know how to do it yet, but I was going to learn. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm a very focused and driven person when I, when I set a goal. And so I, I hectored and, and cajoled this poor man. Uh, we're, we're still friends, by the way. But I hectored him and cajoled him until he finally called up one of his clients, Blackstone Audio, and said, oh, for the love of God, will you please send this guy a book? He's driving me insane. Um, and that was my very first book. They, I just sent it to me. This is, you know, the industry is totally different now than it was 25 years ago, 90, 90, 1996, when I started. But um, I feel, if you bear with me, I have an anecdote I tell about my very first recording session. Um, I had, I, the first book I narrated was, a, a piece of fiction called Cabbages and Kings by O. Henry. It's a series of short stories. And so I'd read the book, I'd done all my preparation, looked up all my pronunciations and everything. And for that first book, I had what they call a monitor, a person who sat outside the booth and sort of proofed you in real time. So if you made a mistake, they would click the microphone, you said street lamp, that's street light or whatever. And we were working in a different situation than, than a lot of people think of when they think of actors performing audiobooks, that we would go to a fancy studio with an engineer and a director. And that wasn't the case at all. It was me in a little booth running the machinery by myself inside the booth. So I'm doing all of it at once. And it's, uh, that was the one element I couldn't practice until I got into the booth. So I'm recording the piece. I'm performing it. And she's outside, you know, proofing me in real time. And in the three-hour session, that first session, I was able to record precisely 15 minutes of material in three hours. Wow. And so I thanked Bernadette. I said, well, I'll see you tomorrow. I got in my car, drove down to Virginia, where I was living at the time. I walked into my uh, the house and... Uh, uh, dropped my bag and proceeded to collapse on the rug in the front room. And I'm laying there staring at the ceiling and uh, uh, Shannon comes over to me and she looks down and she said, are you okay? And I said, this is so much harder than I ever thought it was going to be. This is insane. What have I done? And uh, it was, it was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be, but I had nothing else in front of me, nothing, no other opportunities on the table. 
So I went back the next day and I did 20 minutes and then the next day, 25 minutes and so on. Mm. And so now, you know, after over a thousand books, you know, I can, in, in an hour of working inside the booth, I can generate about half an hour of material. So I've gotten a little quicker over this time. Yeah. But so, yeah, so that's, it was, it, it, to me, audiobooks were going to be just one more thing I was going to add to my portfolio as a performer. Hmm. You know, doing theater and film and television and commercial modeling and industrial training films and commercial voiceover and audiobooks. Hmm. But immediately I saw the potential. And after I got through that, that first very intense experience, and I never really looked back. And I just, I, you know, I, I, it just became a larger and larger portion of my career. And um, that's how I ended up sort of, you know, yeah. going down this, uh, this, crazy, this crazy path. So it sort of like snuck up on you then as, as you know, that you went through all the books and then you suddenly thought, hang on a second, I'm doing this. Like, I'm, I'm, this is now what I do. Yeah, it, well, it, it, it re- yes, after a few years, it did sneak up on me, but around, I don't know, 1998, 99, we were going to get married. Uh, we were planning on you know, buying a house and having mm. a baby, and the baby who's now 22 years old. Um, and I knew I really wanted to jump in with both feet. Yeah. So I, at that point, I'd been doing mainly fiction, and I'd been fitting it in around other projects and things. But I refocused my career that audiobooks would be first and then everything else would be second and third mm-hmm. as far as work. And so I, I, um, I got on the, the phone to my clients and I said, look, I want to narrate as much as possible. I will narrate anything that nobody else wants. Mm-hmm. And so they began to send me nonfiction, which I, that's where I discovered how much I enjoyed mm-hmm. narrating nonfiction and the challenge of it because it is more difficult to narrate nonfiction than fiction. If you, uh, you know, uh, what I teach my students is the only yardstick that matters to a listener was, was it entertaining? And when you use that yardstick, nonfiction is much more difficult to achieve yeah. the goal of being entertaining. But so they sent me nonfiction, but because I was still the new guy, I was getting projects that ran 10, 20, 30 hours long. And um, they were, it was a real, uh, once again, sort of jumping off into the deep end of it. Yeah. But I really loved it. I got to do some wonderful pieces of nonfiction. Um, And so, you know, over the years, the mix of fiction to nonfiction books has predominantly shifted into the nonfiction category. Yeah. Uh, I still do a piece of fiction now and again, but, you know, I'm known as the nonfiction guy. Yeah, I was going to ask what what is it about nonfiction specifically that stands out to you as a narrator? Is it is it that idea of of being able to learn for a profession essentially? You know, I I joked and I tell people that I'm very good at a cocktail party because I know a little <laughs> bit about everything it seems. So yeah, um, yes, there is the learning aspect of it. I you know, I, re- most recently, let's see, I've done I'm wrapping up a book on the Christian concept of forgiveness. Okay. Before that, I was doing a book about uh, industrial design and how it helps us become better human beings. Um, a book about meteorites, a book about um, uh, you know uh, uh, financial investments, yeah. uh, a book about contemporary. So there's always new topics to learn from. So yes, mm-hmm. there is that. And I'm a very curious kind of person. I like learning new things. 
But once again, the challenge itself of can I make this entertaining? Mm. There's an old joke in theater that says, if you can play Shakespeare, you can play anything. And that's true. <laughs> once you learn how to play classics, when you get a film script or whatever, it's so much easier because you're not dealing with archaic yeah. language and all sorts of other things. And it's making nonfiction entertaining is extremely difficult. Mm. It, not it's not and it's not helped by the fact that a lot of narrators and the public think well if it's nonfiction, there's no acting involved you're just reading out loud aren't you mm-hmm. and that also bleeds into this notion that well then ai could do that for us couldn't they and in both instances they're yeah. dead wrong there is acting involved and ai cannot do what i do you know it's far too complex for ai to put across a performance yeah that is entertaining that you'll remember and you'll learn from so yeah, there's a lot of wonderful things that draw me to nonfiction like that. Yeah, absolutely. That makes so much sense. And I, yeah, I agree completely. You're absolutely right. How does your pre-production process differ when narrating a nonfiction project? Would you would you mind telling us a little about your pre-production process and routine? So if it's nonfiction, um, I will uh, I have a sort of a thing I call my three step process that allows me to prep a piece of nonfiction without having to read the entire book cover to cover because my production schedule is so compressed. Mm-hmm. I, there was a time I used to narrate a book a week. I did 50 books a year, year on, year off. And uh, now I'm down to about 30. But they, it, you know, a book can be one hour long or 100 hours long. Mm-hmm. So I'm constantly prepping material. So I've developed a system whereby I asked very pointed questions and I look for those answers and then I skim the entire book to get a feel for it. So I'm asking questions like, who is the author? What do we know about them? What is the genre? Who is the audience? Um, there's research questions. You know, How do you say that phrase in Latin or mm-hmm. this city in Germany or this person's name? Um, there's structural uh, prep that has to be done um, that we have to consult with the rights holder. Uh, do they want this in? Do they want it out? Do you want me to add text for clarification? I'll give you an example. Um, a sidebar box, those little boxes in nonfiction that contain other bullet pointed items, you know, that the author is stuck on the page. Well, every one of those has to be dealt with. Do we read it in line with the text? Do you move it to somewhere else in the chapter, then narrate it, or do you strike it? Mm-hmm. And then there's all little things too, you know, uh, uh, acronyms or uh, citations, footnotes that all have to be tacked down. And then of course, at the very end of those, the step the, the process is trying to find the author's voice so I can perform it. Um, because I approach the book as if it's a script. Um, the, what I do and what I teach, I call it the TED Talk theory of nonfiction audiobooks, And that is when I'm performing a piece, uh, when you, um, you ask yourself three questions. Who are you? Where are you? And who are you talking to? So who am I? I am always the character of the author, but I'm not, I'm not the actual person. I'm not trying to mimic that person specifically. Mm-hmm. I turn the author into, a, you would say, an archetype. So I'm the, I'm the clever American literature teacher who spe- teaches American Lit 101 on campus. I'm the industrial designer who works for PepsiCo who's written this amazing book about industrial design. And then based on that, I can develop a backstory for myself to make the book feel like 
it's a script. It's a the transcript of me talking to people. So I give myself a specific location that I'm in, a, a room. Okay. It could be a, a conference table, a small room, a big theater. And then who am I talking to would be who would want to listen or, to this book. So are you interested in industrial design? Are you interested in the Christian concept of forgiveness and so on? So suddenly I actually have a, a space in my head where I'm standing in front of a group of people delivering this, this sort of a TED talk, as it were. That's mm -hmm. an easy concept to wrap around. And I have to find the author's voice in that. And that's one of the other things I love about nonfiction is when you read a piece of nonfiction for yourself, you get to peer inside somebody's brain. You get to see the depth and complexity of their intellect. Mm -hmm. How well are they taking this idea and fleshing it out for the, the reader? How concise are their thoughts? How inventive is their new take on this idea? Mm -hmm. And how do they put that in language to make that entertaining? Yeah. You know, I've, I've done nonfiction where it feels like the author's just throwing stuff against a wall to see what sticks. And other times I did this beautiful piece of written, you know, their, their thoughts are so concise and put down yeah. so clearly. It's just a, it's a, it's a pleasure. Yeah. So all of that goes into, and that can take, that kind of prep, prep can take three hours or a week. It just depends on the complexity of the project. Yeah. That, yeah, that's really fascinating, actually. And yeah, I, I agree completely about the um, getting inside an author's brain. I myself, as a reader, just love uh, reading people's diaries, you know, especially if they're from a few hundred years ago. And just because you feel like you are stepping inside that mind. It's um, yeah, it's uh, I, I get that completely. The majority of the audience of this show uh, are people who are self-employed or aiming to be working for themselves one day. Um, I always find it fascinating how differently we, we structure our days. What's, what's a typical day in the life like for you? Are you a person who benefits from being in a solid routine? Absolutely. Um, well, I, 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 I'm a very type A personality to begin with, very orderly. Um, and I get that from my parents. My father was a professional fireman here in Oklahoma City for 22 years. Oh, nice. And my mother was a secretary and office manager for 40. So yeah. this concept of planning and execution is hardwired into me and my siblings. Hmm. And uh, a concept I, that my mother taught me when I was a child, it's, I still use it today. She said, think of your, think of your, your day as a, a train that you're building boxcar by boxcar. And so each boxcar has a different label. So that's breakfast, and this is going to the gym, and this is following up on emails and so on. Mm. And you, every day has a slightly different layout of those boxcars of time. Mm. And then at the end, that's your day. That's the train that is Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, but then my father taught me that we don't really manage time. We actually manage our focus. So you say, yeah. okay, from, from 10 to noon, which is what I did here, I was recording. And that's what I'm, so there, you know, the phone is turned off. Mm -hmm. There are no distractions. Everything is focused on just that activity. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, once a certain time comes, then I'm up and then I give, you know, a 15 minute break to do X, Y, Z. And then you move on to the next thing. So he, but he said, you know, when you're in that, that time period, that's all you should be doing. Mm. He never was a fan of multitasking, and neither am I. Mm. He, it, it takes too much energy to multitask. When I'm in the zone or creative flow, as they mm -hmm. call it, um, yeah, they, I just do one thing at a time until I get it 
I run out of that block of time and then I move into the next thing. And it takes, it takes a lot of self-discipline. It's yeah. very easy. And I, I know, especially when my kids were little, you know, you're trying to record and all it takes is a, you know, one of your kids coming in and next thing you know, you're helping them get a snack and, Oh, you know, I should fold that laundry. And, Oh, did I, did I, did I feed the dog or did I, and you can get totally off track. Yeah. So a lot of my students struggle with this as well, with time management and focus. And oftentimes it, I, I'm not, you know, I know it seems a little bit cliche, but I, you know, have them buy the uh, time management for dummies books and things like that. Yeah. They are actually quite helpful. You know? And there's yeah. Plen- yeah. And there's tons of videos on YouTube. I mean, what do you find? How do you structure your day? I'm very similar, actually. I have to. Um, I find incredible freedom in discipline. Um, and as a as a younger person, you know, as a, as a teenager and such, d- d- discipline was a word that wasn't in my vocabulary. Um, it was something that I had to, you know, really get on board with and say, okay, if you want to do this creative work for you know full time, if you want to make a living out of this, you're going to have to be serious. And working from home is often quite difficult. You know, there's so many distractions, or there's the internet, or the, you know, the mobile phone, or whatever. And yeah, the only way that I could do it is from this certain time, I'm the writing from this time, I'm writing from this time that I'm going to um, work on networking or things like that. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm quite similar. Um, it has to be my day is incredibly structured to the minute. And that's the only way I'm going to get things done. The problem too, I think for people who want to be freelance creatives is they're not prepared for how much grind there is, how much mm-hmm. office work, administrative mm-hmm. work. You know, we say auditioning is the job of being a performer. That's your job. When you get to perform, that's the prize. But day in, day out, you know, you're following up leads about books, you're negotiating timelines, you're you're just trying to find what projects are, or you're hunting them down yourself. You know, you're looking on Amazon for books in a genre you would like to narrate. And it takes a lot of work. And mm. as Thomas Edison said, um, most people don't recognize opportunity because it comes dressed in overalls and looks like hard work, you know? <laughs> yeah. And like it. it is that grind. It's the non-sexy stuff that you've got to do to replying yeah. the emails or tracking down an author or, you know, that kind of focused time is not the, what someone getting into being a freelance creative thought of when they said, Oh, I want to be on stage or I want to be narrating audiobooks or I want to do, have my own podcast. Right. Mm. They didn't, you know, and you learn that and that becomes a barrier a lot of people cannot get past. Mm. They procrastinate, they put it off. You know, it's not the thing that gives them joy, mm. but it is essential to get to that place of joy. Mm. And and uh, I think maybe because I grew up in the theater, you know, the hours of rehearsal and 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 weekend shows and traveling and touring and things, I understand that grind. It's just mm-hmm. part of the, you know, it's just part of the life. But it, yeah. Yeah, it can be quite challenging. There are a lot, I think there's a lot of really wonderfully talented people who don't succeed because they can't get past that huge hurdle. Yeah, it makes so much sense. This um, this kind of ties into a question I was going to ask you in a little bit about your book. Um, but did you find that that the business side of this work, obviously you have the creative side, you have the, you know, the performance side of it, but the business side is so important as we've just spoken about. Did that come easy to you? Was it something that you had to learn through the various stages of your career or was it just always there? 
some of it came easy. Some of it was not so easy. So the hunting down auditions, that was sort of became second nature because I grew up Mm -hmm. doing it. But the networking part, oh my God, I was terrible at networking. I've to the point, I remember one time it was my low moment. I was one of my first professional shows outside of New York city. I was in a little town in Pennsylvania doing a play and I was, we finished the show. It had been a great hit. Uh, but I was so in knots about having to go meet the board and the other people who came to see the last show and hobnob that I, I just said goodbye to the director and got in my car and drove back to New York city. I was so (laughs) terrified. And of course, you know, now I look back and I want to, you know, I could, if I could, I would smack the younger me around and say, get your butt in there and go talk to people. So different aspects of the business side came easier than others. Mm. I, I think, you know, at, at at my heart, I am what I would say an extroverted introvert, meaning okay. I would pref- I'm very comfortable being by myself, uh, which is handy because uh, I say narrating audiobooks is more about temperament than talent. Do you have the temperament to sit in a little box all by yourself for hours on end? But um, I have to be extroverted as part of my being a coach and networking. But unlike my son, who's an extrovert, he gets a lot of energy from being around people. At the end of the day, for me, when I do like these, you know, workshops, I'm, I think I mentioned before we started, I'll be in Austin, Texas uh, this weekend with uh, some colleagues teaching an audiobook workshop. And at the end of those workshops, I'm ab- absolutely shattered. You know, yeah. I give everything I have, but I don't, you know, that's the introvert side of me that doesn't, you know, feed, but it's a necessary. I don't say necessary evil, which just comes with the job, as it were. Yeah, I get that. I get. That. I feel very much the same, actually. Um, this is my getting out. <laughs> I spend mo- every other every other uh, moment of the day I'm alone. So this is uh, this is it for me. Um, on the topic of networking, is there anything we should be doing? You know, the listeners should be doing. Up and coming aspiring narrators should be doing on a regular basis that would aid us on expanding our reach of people in. In this age of the internet, do you recommend any particular forums? Is Facebook groups where we should be? Have you got any advice on that? So generally, I, I push my students to be on the big four of Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And I say, I say, join as many groups related to your kind of VO as possible for us. It's audiobooks. It could be any you know topic. And I tell them, I don't require them to post or comment on those groups. I do require them to check in every day to see what people are talking about. Mm -hmm. Because you're going to find a a little piece of information that could turn into a job down the line. Mm -hmm. Right? So, and once you develop that skill or that sort of muscle memory of always checking in, then you're more inclined to maybe comment about something, but you don't have to. Um, then there are the newer ones like Clubhouse or Discord or whatever. I like Clubhouse a lot because you can just go and listen. And if you can, hold your hand up and go on stage and ask a question. Yeah. Um, it's, it's opened up so many more possibilities than even a few years ago when if you wanted to meet the producers, you would physically have to get on a plane and fly to Los Angeles or New York. And, you know, and it was really expensive and time consuming. Here, you can just sign up for some kind of webinar and if you're lucky you can chat with somebody but then it's about the follow-up it's about follow-up that is i think the key to networking 
when you're talking with someone, the key of networking is to make, I always say, make a friend. So you're not just talking about what you do. You're going, oh, so you live in England. Where do you live in England? Oh, okay. Well, my, my girlfriend lives, she lives over here. And uh, so how's yeah. the weather over? You know, you're trying yeah. to find common ground beyond the obvious of we both work in this profession. And, but a lot of people will, will, will you know, have that moment perhaps, but then they won't follow up on it by sending an email the next day or a thank you, a written thank you card. So I know that sounds archaic, but if you can get a home address or an office address and send someone a written thank you card, do you know how special that is now? Yeah. No one does it. And I, I'm sorry, that's just a random example, but the, <laughs> it's about the follow-up. So you, yeah. you know, you follow up with the people you meet, you, you, and, and always remember that if you approach the, the relationship of how can I help this person, hmm. right? As the, the saying, I think it was Zig Ziglar, the motivational speaker said, if you want to become successful, help other people become successful. Hmm. So if I meet an audiobook producer um, and we chit chat and I'll say, well, I'll stay in touch. I might send them some stuff to say, you know, here's what I can do, and this might solve a problem for you. Mm. Or perhaps I, perhaps I know that they that producer uh, produces romance novels, and I don't really do a lot of romance. Let's say I know someone who just won an award as a romance who happens to be a student of mine. I will send that student to them saying, you know, this person just won this award on this. I think they could help you. And it's in those acts of giving, um, yeah. without any, you know, explicit. Uh, quid pro quo that good karma that social capital you bank is yeah. what eventually will have you know that producer recommends me to somebody else and suddenly a book falls out of the sky yeah and then there's of course just the social media aspect itself are you posting on a regular basis about what you're up to are you using hashtags are you tagging people are you being inventive about your posts because that catches people's attention and hopefully it'll get retweeted or followed and you know, it, it feels sometimes as if you're shouting into the void, but the first time you get an email or a response with an offer or an audition, then you become a true believer. Yeah. You know? So I'm sorry, I've sort of, I sort of wandered around the question. There no, I answered it. There's some really great points in there. Some really great points. That's a perfect answer. Thank you. So you want to be an audiobook narrator is a video that I don't think many narrators have, haven't have seen. Um, the test mentioned in that video, again, is, is, is one that so many folks use when deciding whether audiobooks is the right thing for them. Um, it has over um, 150,000 views at the time of this recording. Um, and I'd really love to know how that video, if at all, has impacted your business. Do you get a lot of people reaching out after having seen that? Absolutely. Um... They'll, they'll post comments as well. Um, I, you know, like I said, I, like I say in the video, I created it so that I wouldn't have to keep talking about yeah. the industry <laughs> to people every single time I went out somewhere. And uh, it's, so yes, I get people who eventually coach with me mm. because they want to take it seriously. They did the test. Yeah. You know, they did the two weeks. And then also interest, interestingly enough, I also get responses from people along the lines of, I took your test and it made me realize I could never ever do this for a living. This is insane. You know, to sit in a little box. Yeah. So I feel in both cases I've helped. Yeah, absolutely. See, you know, I, I, I've been very upfront, I think in my 
as a coach or in my marketing strategy is what you see is what you get. Mm. You know, there's never some, uh, and I don't, I don't throw out the promise that you can make six figures a year just with your voice. And I don't No, this is hard work. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, but it has helped a lot of people. They, they come back to me and they, or I'll get, uh, I'll get a response from someone like I did the test. I, I passed. Um, I'm really going to try to do this. I, you know, thank you so much for your help. And I said, great. That's what it's for. So yeah. yes, it's, it's really helped a lot of people. And frankly, I'm, I'm absolutely shocked. It's gotten 150,000 views over this time. It's, it's that I just, that makes my day when I, when I, uh, when I have someone send me an email saying they've watched it and it helped them. Yeah. I bet. I bet. Well, it's, um, it's certainly the video to watch. As I say, I've, uh, I don't know anyone who hasn't watched it in this space. A lot of, <laughs> and a lot of direct, yeah. And a lot of narrators send people who bother them. They're like, okay, just, just go watch Sean's video. Just leave yeah. me alone. And, go watch it. <laughs> and so I've helped the community. I, I actually get those, those responses as well. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, I had the um, I had the pleasure of interviewing Johnny Heller uh, a few months ago, and we were chatting about the upcoming workshops that he and yourself run uh, all over the place. Um, and as we said before, you have one coming up this weekend in Austin with special guest Anna Clements, who we were also lucky enough to have on the show. Um, could you tell us a little about what these workshops entail and, and what one could expect from attending one of these events? So it's a... Uh pretty full on two days. Um, usually on a Saturday, we focus on fiction mm. and Johnny leads that. Although uh, I, I, you know, we, we really co-teach it, but one of us takes the lead. We let, you know, one, it's, it's better to have one person lead. So Johnny does the fiction day and I do the nonfiction day. And then depending who else we have with us, uh, in this case, Anna Clements, or sometimes his wife, Joanna Perrin, who's an audiobook narrator. Mm. Yeah. Uh, she'll be in on that as well. This one's uh, actually uh, really interesting. We have some audiobook producers from Scribe Media who are based mm -hmm. in Austin who are coming in and also Learning Ally, which is a nonprofit organization that produces audiobooks for visually impaired people. And they're going to do a little talk. Um, we talk about the industry. We cover everything from demos to uh style to uh, set up of your booth. Um, and um, we field questions about pretty much anything they want to throw at us. But throughout the day, we have sections where we will have people come up and read. Mm. So they'll come up with a short piece and they'll perform it and they'll, we'll give them feedback. And then, you know, we, we cycle through say four or five people. Then we go back to more Q and A mm. and then we come back to that again and so on. And it's a, uh, so we try to we try to keep changing it up throughout the afternoon for the whole day because it starts from it goes from ten till five, yeah. and it's a pretty full on day, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, Johnny and I could not be more different in our personalities and approaches, <laughs> and I think that yeah, we're good friends and we've known each other for quite a while. And I, in a way, I think that's what makes the event uh, uh, so much fun is that we play off of each other. We're not the same kind of personality. And then when we have someone else come in, in this case, say Anna Clements, we get to add her personality mix and her perspective. Yeah. And we find that really, you know, like Johnny says, he says that, you know, look, you're going to hear different answers from each of us. And it's not that we disagree, it's that we just have different paths to get to the truth of what we're trying to get across to you. And that's, yeah. that's all that is. Yeah. And um, 
And so, yeah, it's, it's a pretty full on two days. We want to, you know, and then in the evening when we're done, we all go out to the pub and we have drinks and dinner. And of course you're, you're meeting your, we like that because it allows the attendees to get to know each other yeah, and see what happens there. And we're looking, we're hoping by the way, to do one or two uh, workshops next year in 2023 in England. We're looking at London, maybe in Manchester, try to get up North. Fantastic. Um, so, so yeah. So yeah. if you don't, if you don't follow Johnny Heller or myself, or in the narration groups, you should, if you're interested, because we will be, our goal, uh, we had done several before COVID, and then, of course, that threw a wrench in the works, but now we're getting the machinery back up again. So yeah. keep your eyes peeled, and we may be uh, down in London uh, in 2023. Yeah, I was, on a, um, I was on a Sunday Schmooze Clubhouse episode, and I think Johnny was on, and he was talking about the possibility of coming to the UK, and there was quite a few people, myself very much included, who was very, very interested um, in, in coming along, if that was possible. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, yeah, it's, it would be yeah. the same. It would be the same structure. It'd be a Saturday, yeah. Sunday, or maybe a Friday, Saturday, you know, back to back kind of thing. Um, although Anna keeps saying we should do it in Reading because uh, it's just outside London. It's easier to get to by the train yeah. and parking and all those things. So, but it, like I said, we we definitely are trying to make it a priority for next year. With um, with coaching and the workshops, etc., do you find narrators find similar aspects challenging, or is it or is it totally unique to each narrator? Um, there are some general things that all narrators struggle with if, if you're beginning. Mm. Um, one of the first things that a lot of my new students who are new to the industry struggle with uh, is learning to as I say, think faster, read faster, and speak faster. When I am performing, you have to be firing on all your all pistons. And then to perform, to especially with nonfiction. So if you think of this, like the TED Talk idea, another mm. way to think of it is like a monologue in a play, like a big one <laughs> that's eight <laughs> or nine hours long. But you have to really command the text. But when you're narrating, you're pretty much reading cold, even though you've skimmed it, or maybe even read the whole book beforehand. In the moment, it's still pretty cold to you. You've only looked mm-hmm. over it once. And so the ability to read ahead of yourself, like a musician reads music slightly ahead, uh, is essential. And it's a technique. Mm-hmm. But it only comes through practice. You can't, you know, it's like learning another language. or something. Unless you're in the booth every day practicing, you're not going to make that breakthrough. Mm-hmm. So... And it took me quite a while. I mean, when I first started narrating, I was narrating each word as I saw it and then reading to the end of the sentence, right? Yeah. And that's not, so I was reading out loud, which is the mistake a lot of people think. And that first leap is, especially in nonfiction, the realization is that we don't narrate in sentences. We narrate in ideas. And an idea can span one two three or more sentences so when you're narrating there's a sweep of the idea regardless of the punctuation but to make it sound like it's coming out of your mouth at that speed requires you to be thinking faster reading faster and then speaking faster yeah and that's a that's that takes hours of practice to get to and that that one i think is um universal across for all narrators to struggle with yeah, absolutely. It's such a skill, isn't it? And I think um, it's always one of those things, at least with myself, that if ever I'm aware of like how far I am in my mind to where I actually am, if ever that, if I ever, if it ever pops into my head, 
that oh i'm i'm doing this now i'm doing quite well at this you know sort of skimming ahead with my eyes it all comes crashing to a halt. It's like... Yeah, you have to feel it. You just have to, yeah. You know, it, yeah, that that you know, musicians say they're in the groove, yeah. or athletes are in the zone. It's just this thing that happens, and it it, it it's a little. It, I can still remember when I first started discovering it in myself. Mm -hmm. I had been narrating for, oh gosh, at least a year. Yeah. Uh, before it really I, I became aware and the first couple of times it happened the hair on the neck back of my neck stood up because I was realizing my eyes were taking in the words and these things were coming out and I'm yeah. like did I actually say what I just and I'd go back and sure enough I did everything that was there yeah and it, it was just a leap it was just a technical yeah. leap that suddenly and then and then I discovered at the same moment wow that sounds like I'm thinking off the top of my head or I'm thinking mm. on my feet as it were and yeah. it sounds real it's not doesn't sound like i'm reading it sounds like i'm talking to you i'm being conversational but yeah, yeah it's it, but it takes hours of practice you're also an author as we mentioned uh, earlier in the episode having written to be or want to be the top 10 differences between a successful actor and a starving artist was a desire to write always around for you no <laughs> actually <laughs> um it came about because of coaching so oh, okay. initially I started, I started teaching and coaching around 1996, around the same time I got into audiobooks, but it wasn't audiobooks I was teaching. I went back to my acting school and I began to teach classes about the business of show business, mm. agents and pictures and, and, and auditioning and things like that. Mm. And for many years, I took that on the road. I would go to a college or university at the time because I lived on the East Coast mm. in the mid-Atlantic region and do these classes, these one-off workshops. Mm. And um, I needed to put my thoughts down on paper to sort of build what, you know, because every a good teacher has, if, if you teach long enough, you know, oh, what is the topic today? Oh yeah, we're doing that one. And you sort of have those notes in your head about what yeah. points you want to get across. And around that same time, there was a, a website called sweet101.com and they offered uh, you could make money by writing short six to 800 word articles for them. And however many times they reviewed, you got you know, a little tiny check as it were. Yeah. And I thought, here's a way to kill two birds with one stone. I can put my thoughts on paper in a structured way that I can then put up there and it'll get views and it'll help me clarify my own ideas. Mm -hmm. And so I began initially, those articles were about show business. They weren't about you know, show business and freelancing, broadly speaking, not necessarily about audiobooks. Mm -hmm. But the more I began to write, the more I began to realize I, I, I have the basic building blocks, the Legos, as you like Lego pieces, mm -hmm. to build something that could be a book down the line. And it seemed like the, the natural end state of all those articles was to put them all together in the right order mm -hmm. and then create this book. And then that became a, a sort of a fun project in and of itself. You've, of course, um, worked with the biggest publishers and studios over the years um, and developed strong relationships and a trust with those companies. For the narrators listening to this episode, spanning the various stages of a career in audiobooks, what can they be doing? What can we be doing? What habits and practices can they be sure to use in order to make the best impression possible and heighten their chances of being asked back? Um so I say be professional, be a grown-up. Things like if 
Okay, let's let's jump ahead. Let's say that you've mm-hmm. been offered the book, or you mm-hmm. right. So there's a there's because there's a long distance between when you start narrating yeah. to when yeah. Random House finally you know says. Yeah. So, but let's let's say you get to that point, and they offer you a book. That first book is still an audition. Usually, it'll be a B list title. Mm-hmm. More than likely, you'll be with a with a director. Not always. You may or may not be in a studio. You might be in your own booth. Yeah. Um, but what they're doing is they're feeling you out. They're you know, is the performance good? Are you on time? How many mistakes are you making? Not that that's a deal breaker. I've made dozens and dozens of mistakes per every recording, but how are you as far as keeping them informed about where you're at in the production cycle? They appreciate that they don't want surprises. So if you get sick, let them know immediately and they can readjust because they always build buffers around the production cycle for these kinds of issues, especially with COVID. Uh, you know, um, and turn the thing in on time and do, you know, do the best job you can. And the truth is they're not going to, the people who cast you will not be listening to the book. The people who are going to give them feedback will be the engineers and the proofer. Mm. They'll say, how did Sean do on this first project? And the engineers and the proofers who live with this stuff every day will give them their unvarnished. Yeah, he was great. He did. Or, well, yeah, he's a little slow in this or. Yeah, it was great. You know, this, this, and they'll have a bit of feedback about that. Now you can ask for feedback. You can say, let me know what you think of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But the casting people, the people who got you hired, you know, just remember they're casting anywhere from 20 to 50 books a week. Yeah. So the odds on them actually giving you concise feedback, it'll be from the second party, an engineer or, or a proofer. Um, And just be professional, just follow up. And, and try to be as, as Johnny on the spot as you can when you have your pickups due or any kind of emails bounce back, back and forth. Yeah. Um, it's more a matter of getting that first, getting that first book is the longer journey that we all, you know, that all my students are in the middle of. Yeah. Um, and they also think, you know, you, you may get auditions and not get them. A lot of people think that people like Johnny and myself, that the books just keep falling out of the sky and that's not the case. Now, the majority of our work comes to us ready to go because we have a history. We've been doing this a long time. Mm-hmm. But Johnny and I were both, uh, when we were doing a workshop last month in New York City, we both remarked that we've auditioned for like six or seven projects each, and we didn't get them. And that's because the, the author had the final say in that situation, and they decided to go with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, most often with the major publishers, they try not to let the author pick because they have a better handle on who they think would be the right voice. Mm-hmm. And that's when you get an email from a publisher, large or small saying, I've got this book. I think you'd be great for it. Here's the timeline. Do you think you could put it in your schedule? Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, we, we still audition and get turned down just like everybody else. Um, we have, uh, we have time for one last question. And again, I'm so <laughs> I'm so grateful for for uh, for you taking the time to join me today. Um, is there? It's a simple one. This one. Is there anything upcoming in the diary? I know we've already mentioned the workshop this weekend, but is there anything upcoming that you're excited about? Perhaps something that we can look forward to. Well, Johnny and I are talking about, like I said, about London in 2023. Um, the the biggest thing on my plate right now or upcoming is I'm planning in the springtime to sit down and I'm going to be writing To Be or Want to Be 2.0. Uh, 
I'm going to be updating it. I'm, I'm, I feel like it's time to broaden the appeal because it's about, I said, a starving performer, a starving artist, starving yeah. actor. And a lot of my friends who are freelancers, creatives in general say, who've read the book said, if you broaden some of the examples and some of the topics, it could appeal to a wider audience and help more people. And so I, I'm going to be working with a colleague to re, reorient the book and update it, bits of it and add a new section uh, based on a workshop I've been doing for a long time where I teach creatives when to take a job and when to turn it down, to have a checklist so I can teach them how to negotiate. It's a workshop I've done for a long time. And I say it's, it's based around what I call my three magic questions. Uh, anytime a freelancer is offered a job, you should ask, what will it do for my career? Will I make any money? And will I have any fun? And it's the process of drilling much deeper into those questions. And you realize they're much more complex yeah. than you might think at first glance. And so I, what I want to do for myself as a project I'm excited about is updating the first book and melding in this other thing to something that would be appealing and easy to work from uh, for people to pick up and help them in their career, whether they want to be audiobook narrators or an actor or a painter or whatever. Yeah. So that's the biggest thing that's, that I'm looking forward to in, in the new year. Fantastic. Well, I, I can't wait to read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, be sure to buy 30 or 40 copies and give them to your closest friend. <laughs> or the audiobook version, which will be coming out. So we'll see. I'll certainly do my best. Um, that just about does it for this episode of the Audiobook Club. All of the relevant links to social media accounts and websites will be linked in the description. Thank you so much for making us a part of your day. And another huge, huge thank you to Sean for joining us. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Audiobook Club. This episode was sponsored by Pro Audio Voices. If you have a story you want to bring to life, head over to ProAudioVoices.com to get in touch with industry professionals that can take care of every step of production, as well as offer support and guidance with marketing, growing your brand, and boosting your sales. Once again, that's ProAudioVoices.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>